0: Amen. All right, take your Bibles and turn over with me to the book of Zechariah. If you're visiting with us this evening uh, for tonight, um, we're going to continue in our study on Wednesday night in the book of Zechariah instead of doing a Christmas service or Christmas sermon this evening. We'll save that for Sunday. So uh, we're going to continue through some of our series on Wednesday night. So that means for some of you who haven't been with us, you're going to jump right into it. A difficult passage of scripture, some difficult visions. We're, we're in some visions, prophetic visions from Zechariah that he is seeing, eight of them, in one night. And we're in vision seven in chapter five of the book of Zechariah. So a fine Zechariah, you've got to probably dust it off a little bit if you've not been in uh, any of the minor prophets here recently. Go to Matthew and go back a couple, and that'll help you find where Zechariah is. Zechariah chapter 5 in verse 5 is what we're looking at. I'm going to read down to the end of chapter, just a short um, uh, vision that is seen here, but uh, hopefully it gives you some explanation. And uh, very interesting, as we read through, some of these visions are very very complex and interesting and takes a little thought and a little bit of history that uh, is needed with that to to understand what is going on. And though oftentimes apocalyptic literature and visions like this, when he sees a vision and there's explanation that is demanded from that. So in verse 5, Then the angel that talked with me went forth and said unto me, Lift up now thine eyes and see what is this that goes forth. And I said, What is it? And he said, This is an ephah that goes forth. He said, Moreover, this is their resemblance through all the earth. And behold, there was lifted up a talent of lead, and this is a woman that sitteth in the midst of the ephah. And he said, This is wickedness. And he cast it into the midst of the ephah, and he cast the weight of the lead upon the mouth thereof. Then lifted I up my eyes and looked, and behold, there came out two women, and the wind was in their wings. For they had wings like the wings of a stork, and they lifted up the ephah between the earth and the heaven. Then I said to the angel that talked with me, Where, or whither, do these bear? Where are they carrying the ephah? And he said unto me, To build it an house in the land of Shinar, and it shall be established and set there upon her own base. Now, um, I was trying to find a title uh, for this uh, sermon tonight, so I'm going to call it the, the Woman in the Barrel. That's what I'm going to call it here. In, on October 24, 1901, a schoolteacher named Anna Taylor, on her 63rd birthday, became the first person to go over Niagara Falls in a barrel. How about that on your 63rd birthday? That's just kind of one of your, you know, on your bucket list, no pun intended. Um, only, uh, and she, the whole ordeal, that the time they put her on the top part into the water, into this barrel, and the time they got her out took about 20 minutes, right? And she came out relatively uninjured. She had a bump on her head. Um, but she quoted in the newspaper the fact that she would never do it ever again, all right? So she, she did the stunt for financial gain. That was she was going to, needed money. Um, she was a schoolteacher. She needed money, and so, uh, so she thought she would, oh, come up with something on this nice 63rd birthday, go over Niagara Falls in a barrel. How about that? However, her manager of the situation ran away with her barrel, which she was using, going to use to uh, tour the country with, and her savings that she had saved up for. And she ended up spending all of her reward ma- money hiring a detective to help her find her barrel. They finally found it in Chicago, and then it disappeared again or something like that. So interesting interesting story about the first person over Niagara Falls in a barrel was a woman. A few weeks ago, I had some trash in my car. And I was kind of going through my car, cleaning up. You know, you got to do that. I think it was around the time where they were doing all this digging across the road here, and my car, my blue car, was red. Um, and uh, the church building was red because of all that dirt that was just flying and going everywhere. And uh, so I was cleaning out my car, and I was in a parking lot, was, and I gathered stuff up in a little Walmart bag, and I saw a dumpster off to the corner of the parking lot, and I was just, so I drove my car over there to throw my trash into the dumpster. When I opened the dumpster door, I got a whiff of a wrong dumpster, okay? I shouldn't have gotten to that dumpster. It it smelled horrible. And uh, I don't know why, It you know, there was a restaurant nearby or what was it? I can't remember what, but it was just... So I threw it in, and I shut the door as fast as I could. And uh, the stench uh, when I opened that door, terrible smell. It was nasty. I told you an illustration a few weeks ago when we were... In chapter 3, about a time where I went on vacation and forgot to take out my garbage in the kitchen. When I got home two weeks later, uh, my whole house smelled uh, uh, terrible, and I should have taken it out, and I didn't. And um, it, it, it's the, the stink and the smell spread throughout my whole house. It was hard to kind of open the windows, get some air freshener, find the pine saw, um, you know, take the, take the garbage out and let it sit and soak in, in, uh, in bleach and all this other stuff to try and get the smell out. And um, I, I want you to understand when, when we think about sin and when God thinks about sin, he thinks about it like a dumpster of trash that's stinks, that spreads, evil is the same, has the same result that trash does, it it will spread. And I think as we watch on television, as we read the newspaper, as you see in this time of year, the shootings that happen, even uh, just today, I was watching the news earlier, someone who had killed a a teenager here in the Huntsville area, and a kidnapping, It's it's just terrible of what we see. And yet, that's what sin does. Don't be deceived that because you go to church and you have a Bible and you come and sing Christmas carols on Wednesday night that sin can't stink up your home too. That's the deception of the devil and sin and our flesh of what happens if we don't deal with sin. And you remember when Paul talks to Timothy, he tells Timothy that the world is not getting better, it's getting worse. He said, "As the end times come, as prophecy gets closer, and we get closer to the to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, men are going to wax in the King James worse and worse. It's going get it's going to get more." filthy, more wicked as the, the time goes on. And I think we can see that genera- generationally. Uh, some of you re- remember uh, the, the, the decay as we see that's going on in our country, just even talking to the kids in chapel about um, watching some, some shows from the 70s and 80s and right in the middle of a show uh, during Christmas season on a secular show, they would actually give the gospel and the true meaning of Christmas. In, in, in cartoons and, and on normal television shows. Nowadays, today, you're not going to find the gospel at all because we're getting farther and farther away from truth until eventually evil is going to culminate into a one-world system under one world leader who is going to bring the ultimate anti-God mentality that we see in a lot of other areas and pockets. But can you imagine what it's going to be like when the church is taken out of this world and the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ through the lives of believers who are filled with the Holy Spirit are going to be taken away? And the chaos that's going to happen during the time of the tribulation and when one leader rises up gathers a world religion and a world power under an anti-God government and and all the nations of the world come together and the filth and the sin that's going to culminate into that time is going to be like none other. It's going to get worse and worse. And when we see prophecy and we talk about prophecy, we realize we're we're not getting better as humans. We're getting worse as humans. We're getting more depraved. In in our society. Now understand that there have been times in, uh, in human civilization uh, that, that evil has, has um, taken form and has manifested itself in a, in a terrible way. We've been blessed here in America with our founding fathers and the Christian heritage and the presence of the church and Christian and believers in God's word that we've been preserved from some of the very wicked and evil things that's going around around the world today. What would it be like growing up in North Korea or in China or in some of the places of this world that have not been blessed with what we have been blessed with? Can you imagine every place on the continent, every nation, every village that you go into, human depravity at its worst, and it's actually praised and glorified? Christians are hunted down? That, that is where we are headed that's why Christians and believers can pray, Lord Jesus, come quickly. And that we have hope that we are already saved from the wrath to come, as I believe that the church is going to be raptured out of here. But there are going to be people who are left. And they're going to have to endure the prophecies that we are reading about in the book of Zechariah. And, and, and these last few visions that Zechariah is going to see, he's going to see an end time where evil is going to culminate, and eventually God is going to judge evil in the nations of this world. We're in the final two visions of Zechariah, of the eight visions, um, all seen in one night. I just reviewed them for you, especially for you that have not been uh, with us, that you can just kind of see. In chapter 1, we saw the vision of the four horsemen. Uh, The four horsemen were standing around ready to patrol the whole earth. That's chapter 1, verse 7 through 17. We saw a man who's standing in the midst of myrtle trees. All right, And then we're given the identity of that man as none other than the angel of the Lord who is standing there. And he's getting ready to give orders to these four horsemen that are going to ride over through the whole world. And they patrol and they come back and they say all things are still and quiet. The angel of the Lord in that place who is the middle man ends up pleading with God. How long, he says, will you withhold mercy from your people and from the nation of Israel and from Jerusalem? And then we're told in that that vision that God is a very jealous God and He is going to bring judgment to those of the world. That was the first vision that we saw. The second vision that takes place in chapter 1, verse 18 through 21 is a vision of four horns. Four horns. Horns spoke of world powers and leaders. And then in those four horns that rose up in power, we also saw four carpenters, or the King James translates the word carpenters, but they be skilled workers, tradesmen who work with their hands. They become instruments that God is going to use to judge the horns, the leaders of the nations of this world. And in that passage, it says there in that vision, the ones who have scattered my people, who have mistreated my people. So judgment, again, is a theme in the second vision. In the third vision we saw in chapter 2, this takes up the whole of chapter 2, is the vision of the surveyor, or the one who's going out measuring in chapter 2. Zechariah saw a man with a measuring tape who goes out and measures the width and the length of the city of Jerusalem. He saw Jerusalem in the future, not a present city, but a future city of Jerusalem that is built on peace because it's a, it's a city that doesn't have walls. And this city that doesn't have walls also has the presence of God dwelling in the midst of them with His glory and His fire that is showing in the midst of them. So somehow, God is going to dwell Presently again with his glory and in his presence in the nation, uh, with the nation of Israel in the city of Jerusalem, and he is going to rule, and Jerusalem is going to have peace. That's the vision that's talking about. With that vision, there was a warning given to all of those who choose to set themselves against God's people, who are the apple in that passage, the apple of his eye. You remember that part in the vision? So what we are seeing in that vision is we are seeing one day a future restored Israel, a chosen Jerusalem in the kingdom age where God will dwell in His presence with them. That's a future time that has not yet happened. That vision ends... With this scene that God is on his throne and he's moving. I remember I told you like, like a mama bear. He's moving, he's getting ready. It's almost like his action of fulfilling the future things is already taking place as God is stirring. The word I think that is used there is he's rousing from his seat. It's almost like a, a bear in the den that's getting ready to come out and attack. That's the, that's the close of that vision that these things are coming about. Vision number four, we saw the priests and the cleansing. In that fourth vision, we saw Joshua, the high priest, who was standing before the Lord in filthy garments, and Satan was there attacking him. His garments were then clean and washed as the old garments were taken off and new garments were put on. That was recorded in chapter three for us, that fourth vision. And we saw that the promise that one day the nation of Israel will be saved and redeemed. One day that branch, the servant of the Lord, that servant branch who's called as a title in that passage, who has perfect vision, perfect eyes, seven eyes, who looks around this whole earth, will remove the iniquity and will save the nation of Israel. And when Israel is saved, someone will sit by of people during that time will sit by their own vineyard under their own roof and enjoy peace and rest. Ladies and gentlemen, that's not happened yet. These are visions that are looking to the future of what will culminate in the end time. Then we came to the fifth vision. This was one of the most complex of the visions that we had seen so far, the vision of the seven lampstand menorah. This is recorded for us in uh, chapter 4. This vision was of a menorah that had pipes, and I remember I showed you some pictures on there, had pipes that were running to this bowl, and then this bowl that was running to these two olive trees. And then a message was given to Zerubbabel who was their governor and their civic leader who was in charge of the building project and in charge of protecting the people and he was given a promise that he would be empowered by the Spirit and it was by the Spirit, not by might, not by power, but by the Spirit that God was going to enable them to accomplish their task. The prophecy of that vision is that one day in the future the nation of Israel will be again the light of the world that will point people to the Messiah in the city of Jerusalem. There is a a future prophecy that they will point people to the glory of God and all the nations of the world will come to Jerusalem and see them as a witness and a testimony. Two witnesses will be given to bring revival to the land and point people to God. And we moved over to Revelation chapter 11. Last week, if you were with us, we saw the sixth vision of a flying scroll. This scroll goes flying through the air as he sees this vision, and uh, it was written on the front and the back, and it was pretty big. It had words, bold words, so that everyone could read it. We heard that it was the commandments of God, the Word of God, and the words of God was a curse or a judgment to the people of the world. Everyone, he says, who is a liar and everyone who is a thief will come into their house and, it, and, and there the scroll will be and it will show them that they are sinners and it will spend the night. Remember, it was going to dwell with them overnight and stay with them. This vision drew our attention to the nation of Israel that judgment starts at the house of God and with his own people. Very personal And before Israel will ever be saved, before Jerusalem will ever be rebuilt, before a kingdom will ever come, they must repent. And it is the commandments of God, it is the word of God, that shows us that we are guilty in need of saving, in need of a savior. That's what that vision is telling us. There is no kingdom. There is no peace. There is no blessedness until the Messiah comes and brings salvation and until His people repent of their sins and accept Him as their Savior. The Word of God is only our schoolmaster to show us that we are in need of a Savior and we are sinners. And one day, the Word of God and the Messiah will come to this world and they they will reject Him. Uh, They have rejected Him, but they will reject Him again, and there will be judgment. Now we move to the last two visions. And they will continue to share in a similar theme. Remember the, la- the the vision we saw before, the vision here, are much shorter in nature. There's not a lot of explanation to them as there was in the earlier chapters. These are only just a few verses. And by the time you get to here, you're supposed to be using your own thinking cap and carrying on the themes of the previous visions and realizing, making your own, own good conclusion based on your own study to understand what the visions are pointing you to. Now, this was one of the most bizarre of the visions. Um, it, 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 it uh, almost was kind of like the one of the menorah where you saw this weird contraption and it's all doing its own thing and pipes coming out and, and this tree and the bowl and the oil and, and no need of hands and it all worked by itself, this robotic thing that was going on. That was, that was kind of complicated to show you some of the symbolisms and see it. That's why I was thankful we had pictures. However, this vision of the woman in the barrel, I, I didn't know how to find pictures for that All right. You're just going to have to use a little bit of your imagination. Hopefully I can help you out. Let me give you some description of this as you walk through. Look at verse 5. A new vision begins because the angel comes to talk to him and he lifts up his eyes. That's the key of what is happening with the transition of these visions. After he sees one vision, he seems to go into this uh, meditation. He's pondering about what he's just seen and about the meaning that he's seen. Then the angel appears and says, Lift up your eyes and look again. So he's bowed his head in contemplation. Now he's seeing a new vision. And in verse 6, he says, what is it? And he says he sees an ephah that is moving. So in the previous vision, we saw a flying scroll going through the air that eventually enters people's houses, sets up in the living room, and spends the night with you. Okay? Now, in this vision, we see an ephah moving, looks like, on the land. All right? So the flying scroll was in the air. This is an ephah that seems to be either hovering over the ground or it's moving on the ground. You know, uh, one, one thing that was kind of wacky that I read said, this is a tank, All right, No, I don't think so necessarily a tank, but it does seem to be like some contraption that is, that is moving. We'll give you a description about what it is here in a minute. But the importance is movement is important to these two visions. In the previous visions, God's Word is moving where sin moves. It moves across the sky. God's Word commandments follows you in your living room and you can't get away from it. Everyone stands condemned under the law. We are all sinners under God's law, and you can't get away from it. No matter how you want it, I want to put this in the closet. I don't want it to go with me. I'm going to go to work. It won't follow me. And all of a sudden, the word of God is this movement of God's word that no matter where you go, even in your most personal place, there's the Bible. There's God's condemnation to you. You are all sinners short of God's glory. Now, in this vision, the ephah is moving. And there's going to be some movement. It's going to move here, it's going to move there, and eventually it's going to take wings, and it's going to fly away. All right. So there's movement in here. In this next vision, we will see the movement of sin. First of all, it's going to go over all the earth. Then it's going to take its flight to a specific area later at the end of the chapter. Sin spreads like cancer. From one nation to the next. Sin affects every area of our world. And one day, in the hands of the devil, he will rise up a world power and bring sin to its ultimate evil, and God will allow it. I was just thinking in a lesson of application please deal with sin in your life before it moves into your living room, before it settles into your closet before it gets into the car with you and you go to work, before it comes um, at Christmas with you, deal with sin because if you allow sin to move in your life, it will destroy everything in its path and you'll regret it. Not only does God's word move with us, but sin also has this movement. Deal with it before it comes to your front door. When sin comes into your life, as a believer, you have an advocate with the Father. First John will tell us, deal with sin right away. Confess it. He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Don't let it fester. Don't let it stay in your garbage can because it'll ruin your home. It'll ruin your marriage. That's why the scripture talks about don't let, don't let your anger, don't let the sun go down upon your anger. Deal with sin quickly. So as we see this vision, we're going to see sin that is going to be moving throughout the earth. Now what is the ephah? Ephah is a measurement of grain or flour. If you were going to go down to the Jewish marketplace and you were going to order um, you were going to order a bunch of grain or flour to go back and cook for your family. You would have, you would have bought based on an ephah. The ephah was the, the highest uh, form of measurement. So that would have been the most that you could have gotten in, in, in a purchase that you could have carried. So during the harvest season at the marketplace, you would have bought food and supplies. They would have been measured out through an ephah. Someone said that an ephah would be very similar to what we would have today, or what is often measured as a, in a bushel. If you were if you were to buy a bushel of of something, um, an ephah of measurement was a large basket or a large barrel that was filled with grain. It, the largest measurement in the Jewish system. One measurement states that it was about five gallons. If we were to twenty two liters or five gallons. Another that uh, said that it was maybe up to as much as nine gallons. So an ephah was mostly a basket or a barrel overflowing with grain or flour. So think of a five-gallon bucket or a barrel of oil. Most scholars would see an ephah as a basket. So when you ha- if you have a different translation, you're going to read here a basket. The word basket is used actually here or a barrel that is filled with grain, and this grain, this barrel that is filled with grain, or basket that is filled with grain, is moving along the ground. And uh, would have been very heavy and very large. Someone, one, uh, I think Warren Wiersbe said it would have probably weighed as much as 100 pounds uh, for that. So enough that one person could carry it, but it was pretty, pretty hefty. All right, so you just grab this barrel, and you would have taken it home and say, all right, Mom, I've got a month's worth. You know, I just went to Sam's, okay? Got a month's worth of groceries here. Now, make us some biscuits, all right? So that's what's kind of, I'm just giving you a mental picture about what an ephah is, what he's seeing here. This is a measurement of grain or flour, obviously in some kind of bucket or barrel that he's seeing in this. Notice the end of the verse, if you see it in the end of the verse. Um He said, moreover, this is their resemblance throughout the earth, throughout all of the earth. Now, if you have another version here, or a couple different versions, the Holman Standard says this is their iniquity in all of the earth. The SV says this is their iniquity, uses the word iniquity. The New American Standard says this is their appearance, uses the word appearance, which is very similar to the word here as resemblance. Another translation says this is their sins throughout all the earth. So is it sins or appearance or resemblance? The Hebrew word is ayin, which is the word eye. It's literally translated the eye, to see. All right. Um, this is why it's translated appearance or resemblance. It can be translated a sparkle or something that is visible to the eye. It catches your eye. It's a sparkle off of the existence. Oh, you got sparkles on your dress. Or you got sparkles on your shirt. And you just, you catch it. You see it with your eye. It appears in some places in the Old Testament with an unpleasant look. When you look at something that displeases you, and it kind of, uh, it it's just kind of like me when I opened up the, 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 uh, you know, the dumpster, and I look I, I smelled something. I didn't quite see anything, but I was like, ugh, I want to turn around. This is not pleasing to my ear, or, or pleasing to my nose, or pleasing to my eye. That's why the word is translated here, resemblance. So when Zachariah sees this barrel of produce, whatever's inside, we're not told necessarily at this point, there is something that sparkles with appearance or something that displeases him. He is looking at a measurement of something kind of like a dumpster filled with trash. Keep reading on. It's revealing itself. So, look at verse 7. And behold, there was lifted up a talent of lead, and this is a woman that sitteth in the midst of the ephah. The talent of lead here is a lid. A talent is a weight. The weight, is, the talent is the heaviest of the weights in the Jewish scale. So this would have been a heavy lead top. So the barrel now has a lid. The basket has a top. It's made with lead. It's very heavy. This is a hundred pound basket that has a very heavy lead lid on top of it. And it's lifted off. So now we have a barrel, a basket with a lid on top of it. Then when the lid is lifted off of the barrel or the basket, there's something inside. What is inside? There's a woman sitting in the midst of the barrel. Hence the title of the sermon, Woman in the Barrel. All right? Verse 8, he said, this woman, he's referring back to the woman, is wickedness. And he cast it into the midst of the ephah, and he cast the lid, the weight of the lid, upon the mouth, the lip, the top thereof. So interesting. Um, The angel gives the interpretation of what the woman is. This is wickedness. And he casts it into the midst and shuts the lid over the top. So the angel opens the lid of the barrel to let Zachariah see what's inside. When he sees what's inside, in seems like inside this grain or this flour, in the midst of it, there's a woman and her name is Wickedness. And it seems like, in this, if you're reading it, it seems like she tries to get out And before she gets out, the angel throws her back down in the midst of the barrel and closes the lid over the top of it as quickly as possible. So, this is like a horror show. This is not a pleasant vision. Hence, why there's no pictures tonight. We find that the woman sitting inside this barrel is none other other than wickedness itself. This is pure evil. It is hiding in this barrel, running over the whole earth, gathering its contents inside. And everyone that sees it sparkles with its evil. One author states she's not dormant. She's dangerous. The word she... Cast down or to throw down. It's used twice in this verse, which means the angel, this woman is trying to get out, and the angelic being grabs her, throws her back into the middle of the barrel, grabs the lid, and throws it onto the top to shut it before she gets out. She's a dangerous figure. Sin is like a wild animal wreaking havoc on everything it touches. You see, we try to control it as best we can but then it gets out. The only one who can control sin is God. I'm reminded of the demoniac who was running around the tombs of Gadara, uh, horrifying and terrifying all of those in the whole village. And then the next thing you know, you turn around and you see him sitting at the feet of Jesus in his right mind. Only Jesus can do that. Only Jesus can do that. Now, interesting enough, there's a problem in this vision. This wicked person is not going to find forgiveness. She's not like the demoniac who's going to repent and turn back. In fact, the angel has to force her back into this barrel, put the lid over the top, because she's not going to find redemption. She has no plans of changing her mind. She has no plans of accepting God. In fact, God's now got her in a cage, and she's trapped. So Zechariah looks up in verse 9. Look down in verse 9 as Zechariah looks up in verse 9. Then lifted I my eyes and looked, and behold, there came out two women, and the wind, that's the breath, it's the Hebrew word ruach, which means spirit. So there's possibly the Spirit of God that could be connected the wind was in their wings. The Spirit of God could potentially be in the wings. For they had wings like the wings of a stork, and they lifted up the ephal. So these two women who come out, who have wings, who pick this, one on one side, one on the other. Remember, it's a heavy barrel. It's got this lead top on it, and it's got this woman sitting in, and she's really dangerous, and she wants to get out as best she can. And so these two women who, these, uh, who pick this barrel up, and they fly up in the air. Now, this is a vision, Right? In in the vision, God can do whatever he wants to do. Now when he takes this, he lifts them up of the ephah between the earth and the heaven, and it's going to fly away. It's interesting as it it does. There's a lot of flying in these two. And uh, eventually in verse 11, as you see it, he said unto me, or the angel, verse 10, that talked with me, I asked him, where are they going? Where are they taking? Where are they carrying this barrel with this evil woman in it? And he said unto me, they're going to take it to build it a house in the land of Shinar, and there it's going to be established. It's going to be set on our own base. All right, interesting things going on. So what does all this mean? Okay, we've got five minutes. What what does all this mean? What are we seeing here? Well, let me let me cause you to think here. Uh, the word wickedness is um, is a noun that is always used in the Old Testament in the feminine. Some words in Hebrew are only used in the feminine form. Don't get mad at me. It's just the Hebrew word. But the, when the word wickedness is used in the Old Testament because of the way the word is used, it is always in the feminine form. This does not mean that men are not wicked. We are just as wicked as women are. Hear my sermon from Sunday morning on the list of all those wicked men in Jesus' family tree. But in the vision, wickedness is personified and pictured as a woman. This has been done before. Proverbs chapter 2 and Proverbs chapter 5. The strange woman, the harlotry woman, is pictured as a woman of wickedness. You say, well, yeah, but also in Proverbs, it pictures wisdom as a woman too. Well, it does, right. But in the book of Hosea... The wickedness of Israel is personified through a woman, a prostitute, a harlot. Isaiah does this as well. Hosea and Isaiah also picture wickedness in in that form. Another thing to consider is that in prophecy, a wicked city or the wicked system of religion is pictured as an evil, wicked woman. In Revelation chapter 17 and 18... There is an evil, the most classic example in the Bible, in prophecy, for a wicked woman, a harlot, is that great whore, which is the city of Babylon. If you know your prophecy, then you will know in the future time there will be an evil, wicked system of religion and government that will, uh, that will come together under the headship of the Antichrist, the son of perdition, and the false prophet, and this evil empire will rule the world through the devil, and it's called the great whore. You can read in chapter 17 and 18 of Revelation. Peter calls it Babylon, as well as John calls it Babylon. Notice in the last verse, "Uh, and he said unto me to build it a house in the land of Shinar. Do you know where Shinar appears for the first time in the Bible? In Genesis chapter 11. Actually, it appears in chapter 12. 10 first is just a description of a city that's built. But in Genesis chapter 11, it says, in the land of Shinar, they began to build a tower that would reach unto heaven. And they got together and they said, let us make us a tower that we will make our name great and we will make a city that is great. And the end of that story in verse 9, and the name of that city is Babel. This city finds its way into prophecy as a wicked city that has set itself up against Jehovah. All throughout the Bible, Shinar, or another word for Shinar, is Babylon, is pictured as the ultimate wickedness against God. This city has always been connected with rebellion against God. It was the first city to unite against God, and it will be the last city that will unite against God. So what seems to be happening here? is that Zechariah is seeing a wicked woman, a city, a worldwide religion under the Antichrist with the power of the devil being taken inside a barrel with a lid over the top and taken out to the land of Shinar in Babylon. And there a house, remember a house that is being built, is in connection to a place of worship, a temple, and it will be set down there. The focus of this vision is on the woman in the barrel and the destination of the barrel, not the identity of the two women with wings. One author wrote that they were merely angels who were just carrying the basket. Two things that come up to me here just about the stork. The stork, as mentioned in this story, interesting enough, it was a very large bird. It has a wingspan of 10 feet, some storks do. They are not a small bird, so the size is probably just a picture of how big these two creatures are. The other is the stork is one of the Jewish unclean birds mentioned in Leviticus eleven nineteen 19 and Deuteronomy 14, 18. They only appear a few times in the Bible, and they always appear outside of this place as an unclean creature. They were not permitted to eat it. These unclean birds are used in a vision to show the whole issue of how wicked and evil sin is. Notice who controls this woman and who controls this event. The woman in the barrel cannot get out. She is being taken and set against her will. And God is the one who controls the whole situation. He is allowing it. There are limits to the evil nations of this world. You cannot do anything without God allowing it. So can I ask this question? Why then does God allow evil? Why does he allow someone like Hitler? Why does he allow some, a group like Hamas? Why does He allow a Stalin, or a Mao Zedong, or a Ho Chi Minh, or a Caesar, or a Nebuchadnezzar? Why does He allow evil in the evil nations of this world? He allows them because man has his own free will, and a God allows evil to spread. But one day, God's allowing will be all over. His mercy will be stopped. And God will say, in big words for us, I guess in just my, my translation, Enough no more evil, no more nations, no more rebellion. And God will come back, and he will put a lid on every single one, every world power, every world leader, and every world power that has set itself against God, and he will say, enough is enough. The next vision is going to describe for us what God is going to do with that barrel and that woman in the barrel. The vision is telling us that evil and wickedness are going to be wrapped up one day, a giant system taken and built up into one area of the world, and that evil will find its ultimate climax in attempt to rule the world under a one world leader, and it will attempt to gather all people against God. And yet God is going to have the last say. So how do we make an application to this vision? What were God's people to do with the information from this vision? Just three points here. First of all, I think they were to walk away completely afraid of sin. The horror and terror of wickedness and sin in this world is nothing nice. It's evil. It's destructive. And when they saw this vision, they were to be afraid. I don't want any part of sin. I think they were to walk away encouraged to not get caught up in these worldly powers. This could be idolatry, materialism, consumerism, some flashy leader who wants to convince the world that he can bring peace and hope apart from God's Word. We need to be very careful on the promises of people who don't follow God's Word that somehow they can make your life better. Satan knows all too well how to mask sin and bring a sparkle to our eye and cause us to be distracted. And I wonder if this vision here is telling the nation of Israel, be careful who you trust in. Would that be a lesson to us as well as Americans? Be careful who we have our trust in. Satan always has someone in in ready when as soon as God blows that trumpet, takes takes the, the church out, he's got somebody ready to bring a world power and those will be deceived to follow him thinking that he will give them and do for them and buy and sell and make peace when it's all a lie. I think they were to walk away knowing that this world will rise in evil at time and move, but don't ever lose heart and take courage in the task to be the light and salt even when evil is wicked. Until God comes back and sets up his kingdom, we have a responsibility in a very evil and wicked world that's getting more evil and wicked to just share the gospel that there is hope if you will repent and trust in God. One day, God will judge this world. Just like when he looked down over this world and he saw it evil everywhere and it repented of him that he had even made man. And he said, I will judge this world by by water, by a flood. Peter says, just like God did it one time in the past, he will do it again in the future. And he will look down to this world and say, look at all the wickedness, and it just grieves my heart. And then he's going to call the the judgments of God that are going to come out upon this world to be poured out like his wrath. So what we're seeing in this vision, very interesting, this wicked woman in the barrel being shut up and taken away. God is allowing what's happening and what's going on, but it is a warning to us, an encouragement to us to keep heart and stay courageous even in light of so much evil. Father, I pray as we close tonight, there, there's a lot packed into these very complicated visions. And uh, thank you for giving me the opportunity to spend the time and study. And Lord, I pray that it would be a blessing and a help for sometimes these very Difficult places that we read through. We just don't understand. And uh, Lord, as we look to some, some prophecy in the future and try to bring things together from Genesis 11 to Revelation 19 to Zechariah 5, that we can see it, your plan has not changed. And it, we are headed towards somewhere. And, and that somewhere is the ultimate place where Jesus is going to bring peace on this earth. It is not going to come through some world system or some world power. And while evil is, is wreaking havoc in our world, we have an opportunity to share the hope of Jesus Christ um, until you say enough is enough. Uh, Lord, would we continue to be about uh, telling people, even at this Christmas season, the hope of Jesus Christ. Help us to be careful of sin when it creeps to our front door like Cain and longs to come in and cause havoc that, that we would deal with it. And thank you for a Savior who allows us to be able to deal with our sin. In Jesus' name we pray.